You can turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 11. Um, If you don't have a Bible and you would like to look along because we don't have a screen while we're outside, um, we have spare copies of Bibles um, that you can have, take home. Um, We use the ESV translation, so if you'd like a Bible, just put your hand up now. I know it's awkward, not very Australian to kind of out yourself, but just do it, um, and Arby will get you one. Fantastic. Well, we are going through a series called We Are, and the basic uh, idea behind it is um, going through key topics for us as a church as we begin our year that I I believe the Lord led me to as I was planning and preparing uh, that will help us to continue to grow in the grace that we've already been given. Um, All of these things we already do really well, I believe. I think there's a grace from God, but I wanted to preach on them so that they remain distinctive and they remain active amongst us, that we don't, by assumption, forget and lead to inactivity. Last week, we looked at we are a generous church, um, and we looked at how grace motivates and makes possible generous giving. Uh, And we already are such a generous church, and I'm just, from my own heart and all of our hearts, just giving us opportunity in that message to go further, to, to ask that question, am I generous, and how can I grow in it? That was last week. Uh, Today, we're looking at the topic, we are a prayerful church. We are a prayerful church. And we're going to go to a few different places, but mainly Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. Um, And in this section of Scripture, um, it's following on from when uh, the the disciples asked Jesus, "How how should we pray? You taught the disciples, teach us. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer, um, which we get, obviously, and we've already preached on that in Matthew 6. But then in verses 5 to 13, he gives a story and a parable about what should mark a prayer. What, what, what should a prayer look like? What should they do? Uh, and that's going to be the heart behind today's message. First, let me pray. Would you join me? Lord God, I pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how you would answer this question. Often you have to do it when you meet people for the first time or maybe perhaps in a job interview or in a tutorial um, kind of scenario. But someone might ask you, it's quite an invasive question, what type of person are you? Uh, You might go towards some kind of Maya Briggs, I'm an ESFP or I'm an INFJ, or you might have that kind of thinking, what type of person? Well, this is my personality trait, or perhaps you're into the Enneagram. Um, I'm not really into it. It sort of looks weird and like triangles. I'm, I'm not into that, but you might be into the Enneagram and you think, I'm this type of person, or um, I don't know all the other ones. Um, we can use these kind of personality profiles to describe us um, How would you describe yourself if someone asked, what type of person are you? What makes you, you? As I was studying this week, I came across a quote, which I've read before, by the uh, Scottish preacher earlier last century, Robert Murray Machane. He says this, What a man is alone, on his knees before God, that he is. And no more. What type of person are you? According to Pastor Machine, the type of person you are is revealed in the type of prayer that you are. 
We reveal our true self, no performance, no, you know, uh, people to respond to. Our true self comes out when we are alone with God. J.I. Packer, the late J.I. Packer, also said a similar remark. I believe that prayer is the measure of the man, or woman, of course. It's the measure of a man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. How we pray determines, according to these pastors, who we really are. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? I mean, it's a scary thought if you look at your own prayer life as I assess my own prayer life. But I do believe that they are true. I do believe that that sentiment does capture much of who we are as individuals. When no one's looking, when it's just us and God, the most foundational and important relationship we have in all of our life is how we pray and how we communicate with a personal God. This is not just true, though, I believe, of the individual. I believe it's true of the church. The the character of the church is made up of the character of individuals. And so how we pray as a church, as a body, is reflective of who we truly are as a church in the way that really matters. You can be a growing church, an expanding church, a multiplying church, an efficient church, an operational church, you know, an excellent church, an entertaining church. You can do all these things without prayer. You can do all these things without relation to God, and many churches do. But at the sum, at the apex of our reality of who we are as individuals and as people is how we relate to Almighty God, our Maker, our Creator, our Father. And so, who are you alone on your knees? Who are we as a church alone on our knees, together on our knees? We're going to turn to the Lord Jesus and we're going to see from him in this parable today three things that ought to mark us as prayers. Three things that ought to mark us as we go about alone on our knees and together on our knees as a church. This isn't all you could say about prayer. There is so much you could say about prayer. There are fantastic books on the bookshop by Tim Keller, by Paul Miller on prayer. Highly recommend them. But for today, just three things that ought to mark our prayer from the Lord Jesus. Let's read Luke 11 verse 1 to give us context in the verses 5 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. He goes on to teach them the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. That's kind of the content of prayer. And then he reveals in verse 5 the kind of the marks of a prayer by a story. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to 
at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My family and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to good give, good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? There's much that could be said from that passage, but I want us to focus on three marks of prayer. Point one, dependent prayers. No, to de- dependent prayers. I'm reading it as prayers. Dependent prayers, devoted prayers, and point number three, hungry prayers. We'll deal with them in turn. Point number one, dependent prayers. In this story, we, we have um, a, a scene, obviously the disciples are gathered around Jesus. They've noticed that his prayers are quite different to what they've grown up with. Perhaps they had formulaic, ritualized prayers, prayers that they just said. Uh, maybe you grew up in a context where you had kind of a, a book of church, uh, a book of prayer that you said in, in an Anglican service perhaps. And maybe you know a lot of rote prayers, perhaps that was their scenario But the disciples are looking at Jesus pray and they're thinking, whoa, whoa, this is different. You seem to have a connection that we don't have. Teach us how to pray because clearly we don't know. Um, Which is a great, you know, instinct of a disciple. If If you're a follower of Jesus, our instinct ought to be, Jesus, teach me. I don't know, you do, inform me. Uh, very wise of the disciples in that moment. And so Jesus teaches them um, a what looks like formulaic prayer, but really the Lord's Prayer functions as a model for the types of requests we ought to ask of God. It shapes us as we, we concern ourselves to the Father, and then we concern ourselves to the horizontal. But then in verse 5, he tells this story. And it's a story that might not make a whole lot of sense to us with phones and and big houses. But in a Middle Eastern context, this hospitality story makes a ton of sense. Um, He paints this picture of a friend, a, a man who in the middle of the night, perhaps because it was too hot to walk during the day, a friend arrives on his doorstep. And in Middle Eastern culture, you have this expectation and this duty. You must provide hospitality. You can't say, bro, like, no, like... They're, they're a journey. There's no hotels. There's no motels. There's no Airbnb. He's come to you. You have to put him up. And it's the middle of the night. You've already, they live in a subsistence economy, right? They have enough food for each day. They've already baked. They've eaten their food. And so he's about to be shamed. A friend turns up and he doesn't have any food to give him. So what does he do? Perhaps he says, oh, I just got to duck to the toilet legs it outside, runs across the road to um, you know, Joseph's house, knocks on the door, bangs on the door. He's like, I need some bread, help. And Joseph's in bed and you know, um, 
Hi, Joseph. Um, I don't know why I used that, but anyway. Um, Joseph's in bed, and in that, in that scenario, like in the Middle Eastern home, they, they likely had one room, um, and everyone slept like on the one mat in that one room, and so his whole family's right there. There's a door, guy banging on it, the family's there on the mat. To open the door, he'd have to pick up the mat, move the family, open the door, unbolt it. What do you want? And so the guy's calling out, I need bread, I need bread. You know, give me what I need. And what is the reply? Um, he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Um, Jesus tells this story um, not so much to highlight the unwillingness of God to answer our prayers, but what he wants to demonstrate in this first section is the dependence that this man had on someone else. You see, the, the man is totally in need. He, he doesn't have what he needs to provide, and so he goes searching for someone who can help him. He knows that within himself he cannot magically produce three loaves of bread, this desperate situation, but he runs into a complication. He, he, he goes to his neighbor, and his neighbor says no, but notice how desperate and dependent this man is. He keeps on banging on the door until at last the friend gives in. The first thing I want us to see from this story is that point, that this man knew his need. He felt it keenly. He was desperate. And in his desperation, he turns to someone to help him. In this, he is dependent. And this really is the first way we learn to pray, isn't it? We, we know we have a need when we have a keen sense of an urgent crisis or an inability within ourselves to provide, and we turn to our Almighty Father in total dependence on Him to give us what we need. But slowly over time, perhaps you're like me, we grow wiser smarter, more competent and able, and we begin to lose our sense of neediness. We lose our sense of urgency. We lose our dependence and actually become independent. We begin to stop asking for counsel and wisdom. We stop banging on the door of heaven and we sort it out on our own. We become independent. Of God. Functionally, we don't need Him. And independence and prayer is like oil and water. They don't go together. If you are independent, you will not pray. And the first thing Jesus is trying to teach His disciples about prayer is you are in need. You are in need. You need help for all things. And therefore, what do you do when you're in need? You turn to someone who can help you. But far too often in my life, I can become like Joshua and the Gibeonites, if you know that story. After the Israelites passed from you know, being in slavery in Egypt, they're redeemed, they're brought into the promised land, Moses dies, Joshua becomes their leader, and gradually, by God's grace, they start to drive out enemy nation that will not repent and turn to, um, turn to God. And so they go and they take on Og of Bashan and um, Sihon of the Amorites, and as they're progressively cleaning out the promised land, 
word spreads and the nations start to fear. And in fact, all the kings and the councilmen get together and they start to unite against Israel in order to try and protect themselves. But one group is really quite clever, the Gibeonites in, in the Hivite territory. Uh, the Hivites, sorry, in the Gibeonite territory. And they, they realize, hey, let's, if you can't beat them, join them. And so what they do is they're they're really cunning, is they um, travel from their little location, which is not that far from Canaan, and they put on really old clothes and worn through sandals, and they get dry bread and worn out um, water pouches, wine skins, and they present themselves to the leaders of Joshua and Israel. And they say, we are from a distant country. Make a treaty with us for peace. And the leaders look at um, these men and they see, like, they look haggard. They, they're bearded up. They're, they're looking terrible. But they do have this instinct. They have this sense. And they say, ah, how do we know that you're not from among us? And then they go into their spiel. Look, the water, it was a fresh wineskin when we came. Now it's cracked. Look at our sandals. They were new before we came. Look at our bread. It was fresh. And now it's all dry and crusty. Look at our clothes. And then Joshua 9, verse 14, comes the moment. So the leaders of Israel took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. The result is that instead of being able to clean out the entire promised land, now they have made a covenant, a peace treaty in the name of Almighty God with one of the nations that they were meant to drive out. And how did this disaster occur? What was their failure? They did not ask counsel of the Lord. They were independent of him. They didn't look to him to see Lord, what do you think about this situation? They didn't ask for counsel. They didn't consult the Lord. They didn't go to the tabernacle and weigh it up. Instead, they relied on their previous success. They relied on their previous grace. They relied on their accumulated wisdom. They did not ask counsel of the Lord. And James 4, 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. Friends, Is your life characterized, is your prayer characterized by humble, even silly dependence upon God for all things from the small to the great? It's what Jesus is driving at in this first story. This sense of dependence, that desperation. We need help. That's the first cry of prayer. Prayer is dependence. Are you often asking, Lord, should I take this job? How should I date this person? Where should I change in my life? Lord, would you provide daily bread? When was the last time you prayed for enough food for tomorrow? It even extends sometimes in our ministries. How often do we just turn up and serve, but don't ask for the grace to do it? How did you come to church today? Expecting the Lord to be here or asking him to presence himself amongst us? I was convicted of this as Shinu was planning out mission. I wanted Shinu just to run a lot of outreach so that we could meet more people in Parramatta and see them saved. And Shinu came back to me and he was like, well, I actually want to run like monthly prayer for the mission because, I, you know, 
we want God to kind of move amongst us first, and, and the real power comes from prayer. And my instinct was like, no, we have other time for praying. Go out and do mission. But it shows that I was thinking that we can get it done. We didn't ask. I wasn't seeking power or counsel from the Lord. Prayer is dependence. When we do not pray, we do not depend. When we do not depend, we become independent and we cut ourselves off from God's grace. We miss out on his abundant grace and power to help us. We miss out on having a friend provide us three loaves, so to speak, in this scenario. Our operating assumption as a church needs to be, without God, we have nothing. Without God, ruin. Without God, folly. But with God, oh, power. With God, possibility. With God, wisdom. So, the first mark of prayer in this story is dependence. He knew his need. He sought out help. That's how we're to pray, alone on our knees. Silly, even, in our dependence. Recognizing we are finite, he is infinite. The second mark of prayer is devoted. And this is really the heart of the story, is he's commanding the disciples to be devoted prayers. Read with me verses 8 through 10. So point one, dependent prayers. Point two, devoted prayers. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I, I, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. The point is clear. If we are truly dependent and needy, then we ought to be devoted to praying. If we really think we've got this lack and only God can provide it, then our prayers ought to be marked by devotion to it, consistency in it, a doggedness in our prayer, a knocking on the door of heaven repeatedly. In fact, the, the language in this, psalm, uh, in, this, in this parable is that of a continuous verb, the one seeking, the one knocking, the one asking. It's not a once-off. Jesus is telling his disciples to be naggers in a sense, to, to be knocking on the door of heaven, not once, not twice, but continually pleading with the Lord, petitioning with the Lord, being devoted to prayer. This point is repeated throughout all of Scripture. In Isaiah 62.7, the, uh, the Lord says through Isaiah, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it, praise, makes it a praise in the earth. Give him no rest. <laughs> Pray the promises back to God until he answers them. Ephesians 6.18, in spiritual warfare and all of life, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Why do we pray devotedly? For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, 
it will be opened. The Lord wants to answer our prayers. The Lord wants to fulfill our need. He's not like the friend who's reluctant to get up in the middle of the night. The whole point of that friend is to contrast it to who God really is, which we'll see later on. He's inviting. He's almost tempting you. It's like, pray. Keep praying and see what I'll do. And how does God answer our prayers? Well, the first thing to note from this story is that he always does. Look at the promise. If you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be opened. All believing prayer is answered prayer. Just the answer is not always what we want, right? (laughs) Every prayer is answered. And the Lord seems to answer prayers in two ways. Yes or better. He either grants our request because it's in line with his will and it's good for us and his people and his glory, or he says, no, I got something better for you. It's either yes or better. God is not a genie. Devotion to prayer does not equal getting whatever we want, but we will be answered. The Lord will hear us because of Christ, because his blood was shed for our sins and there is no longer enmity between us and God. We are invited into the throne room. He will answer, friends. However, it does often feel, doesn't it, like the Lord doesn't. It does often feel that we pray and we pray and we pray and the friend, the Lord, never gets up. Or he never says yes. He doesn't give us the three loaves that we ask for. Have you ever felt that determined prayer, dependent prayer, devoted prayer, but silence from heaven? Jesus addresses that in verses 11 through 13 by revealing to us the the relationship of our prayer. What father, and note the relational aspect, what father among you? If his son or daughter asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to good give good, I did that again, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? God's not a trickster. He's not saying, pray to me, pray to me, pray to me, pray to me. Scorpion! Ha ha! Shouldn't have asked, because I love to bring suffering and punishment and torture into your life. No. He's a father. And through Christ, you're a son and daughter. And he wants what is best. He does not always say yes. But if he says no, he's saying better. Because he's a father. And you're his precious child. Firstly, dependent prayers. Secondly, devoted prayers. Thirdly, hungry prayers. I want to finish with a reflection on the final line in the parable, verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Notice what happens there. Jesus introduces a wild category into this list. So often we think of prayer about meeting our needs and our temporal concerns and getting that job, getting that um, partner, getting that thing, getting that money, getting this, or even getting church and all these type of things happening. And we have pretty small requests. But what did Jesus promise that the Father is willing and excited to give his sons and daughters? The Holy Spirit. Think of that. In all the Old Testament, but few of God's people ever received the Holy Spirit. And now in the age of Christ, those who call upon God, those who seek, those who knock, those who ask, will receive the Holy Spirit, the God eternal. (laughs) You will receive God. That is what Jesus introduces, this whole new category of need into the disciples' lives. You don't just need bread. You don't just need jobs. You don't just need money, relationships. You need God. And better yet, God wants to give you more of himself. Jesus is introducing a new category of hunger, the hunger for more of him. The hunger to experience more of his reality and being. To be overwhelmed with his presence and goodness and glory in a way that you never have before. To have power like you've never had before. Friends, have you grown comfortable with your current experience of God? Have you grown accustomed to your current level of passion for the Lord? Are you desiring for more of Him? When was the last time you prayed genuinely for God to fill you with His Holy Spirit. Yes, we have the Spirit through Christ, a down payment of our future inheritance. But in the age of the Spirit, in the New Testament age, in the age of the church, in the last days, God promises to fill His believers with an ever-increasing awareness of and dynamic presence of the Holy Spirit. When was the last time you prayed not for bread, but for the Spirit to be at work in your life? What greater need do we have in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our church lives, in our society than more of God? What greater need does Sydney and Parramatta have than for the Holy Spirit to fall upon his people and his church again, to be radically changed by the presence of God in our lives? Yet so often we become complacent with our current level an experience of God. We lose our appetite for more. We no longer knock, ask and seek for more of him. This week I was personally challenged in this area as I met up with a brother. He was 
perturbed by the state of his uh, local church and just his years of ministry. And he was perturbed that after all this time, he just sensed that in himself, but in his people, that they'd grown complacent. Satisfied with the grace of God they'd currently received and grateful for that, but not seeking, not hungry for more. And I was convicted. I think there is so much grace in our church. I am a happy pastor. There's so much grace in my life. I am a happy person because of God's grace. But I believe that we ought to be hungry for more. More of God. This was Moses. And we saw in our first sermon in this series that he asked God to re- reveal himself. And he says to the Lord, show me your glory. <laughs> Moses prays that after seeing God do all the plagues, split the Red Sea, reveal himself um, on the mountain in vol- you know, like thunder, lightning, speak to him audibly. Moses used to meet with the Lord in the tabernacle and it was like a friend talking face to face. When Moses came out of the tabernacle, his face shone. Yeah. (laughs) Moses' experience of God only grew. His appetite grew from God. It's not like, I've had enough now. Let's turn to the world. The mark of a true Christian, the mark of those who are wrought by God's word is I want more. He cries out, show me your glory. (laughs) And what does the Lord do? He shows him his glory. He goes on to reveal his goodness and proclaims his name. That's our memory verse for this month. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God delights to answer the prayer for more. But perhaps the reason we don't hunger for God we don't want more, is that we are full of this world. John Piper, in his excellent book, and I should have bought it for this week, but I'll buy it for next week, A Hunger for God, the book on fasting says this, the greatest enemy of our hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what will keep us from the banquet table of his love, in Luke 14, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God, is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. End of quote. What chokes out our hunger for God is feasting on other things. 
And more than anything, friends, I wanted to end on this note because I believe our church, we are a dependent church. People are constantly saying, can I pray for you? Can I have prayer for this? We're a prayer, we, we are dependent. We know we need God. I think we are a devoted church in prayer. We, we schedule prayer. We, we love to pray. Um, there's going to be more opportunities to pray, like Friday nights for mission and potentially more opportunities. But I want us to be hungry prayers, not satisfied with the current experience and, of God that we have presently. So how do we grow in being dependent, devoted, and hungry prayers. Well, there are many things that can help. There are many books, the disciplines, all that helps. But one key practice that I want to put to you today is this. The practice of prayer and fasting. I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of fasting. Perhaps it's an intermittent fasting diet for weight loss or some kind of religious asceticism, legalism, or perhaps medical reasons. But one of the practices that has helped me to grow in my hunger for God almost more than anything else of late, and my hunger for the presence of his kingdom, and my longing for King Jesus to be known in my life and in this world, and for him to come back, is the practice of weekly prayer and fasting. Fasting, in one way, could be described as abstaining from something good to create a hunger for something even better. Fasting is to say no to pleasures, good gifts from God, so that we can train our soul to long for the even better pleasures, which is God himself and the coming of his kingdom in Jesus Christ. Fasting is expected by the Lord. We will see when we get to this in Matthew 9. um, The disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Then they will fast fast. Why do they fast? Because Jesus isn't present anymore. Why do they fast? Because they're waiting for the king to come back. Why do they fast? Because they're mourning that they don't have more of God now. We fast because we long for greater things. We fast because we want God to evidence himself on earth and in our lives. And so, may I commend to you the practice of fasting abstaining from the good to hunger for the better. And in that practice, may it teach us to be dependent upon prayer. Not eating creates this fresh sense of need. May it help us be devoted in prayer. Not eating helps us to have clarity and acuity to think, why am I not eating? Oh yeah, it's because I need God and I want God. And not eating helps us to be hungry for more of God. John Piper describes fasting as homesickness for heaven. And so beginning next Friday, we're going to be having optional but led fasting for the church. Friday fasting, once a month, an opportunity to dip our toes into the water as a church in fasting and seeking him together. And uh, then we will meet on Friday night and pray for mission 
and perhaps break the fast together, worship together, pray together. And I believe these type of practices will kindle within us fresh hunger for the Lord. J.I. Packer said, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man, spiritually, in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Who are you, friends, alone on your knees? Who are we as a church? My hope and my desire is that we would continue and grow to be dependent in prayer, devoted to prayer, and hungry in prayer as we seek more of the glory of the Lord and of his Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Would you now join with me in the privilege of praying to our Heavenly Father, who surely will listen. Lord, we cry out with Moses, show me your glory. If we're sleepy in our appetites for you, Lord, we ask that you would put within us a fresh hunger for more. Lord, may we have more of you, a deeper awareness of our need for you, a greater commitment to our dependence and devotion to you in prayer, and a holy discontent. Would you expand the desires and the faculties and capabilities of us to worship? Lord, we recognize that we just nibble and nibble and nibble at all the gifts that you give us and sit down content. Lord, may the gifts lead us to greater worship and may the abstinence of the gifts lead us to greater hunger. And so, Lord, I pray for a revival amongst us. Revive our hearts. Fill us, own Holy Spirit, that we may have a fresh awakening and a fresh experience of you. Even now, Lord, please do not leave us without more of you, Father. Fill us with grand thoughts of your Son, with the glories of Calvary. Let us spur one another on, encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. In Jesus' name we pray and plead. Amen.